It is wonderful to be here this morning at the Hickson Presbyterian Church. I feel honored and, and so happy as I drive up that driveway, hundreds of memories flood into my heart and my mind um, as I think about, yes, back then mowing that grass. Uh, but more than that, uh, as deacons used to do, but I think about the um, relationships and families and people that touched our lives throughout the year. Penny sends her greetings to you this morning. Uh, as I remember, I was baptized actually somewhere right over in that yard, what used to be the sanctuary many years ago, and I was ma- married back in the area, the adult Sunday school class areas are, um, but um, Hickson is a wonderful church. We want to thank you for, and it's hard to believe that it will be 33 years next week that Penny and I packed our 30-foot moving truck and moved to Philadelphia so that I could go to seminary. And um, some of those people who are here, here today who helped us pack that truck, Doug and Donna Jones, and uh, uh, some other folks here, uh, Don and Carol Pierce, and uh, we still have pictures of, the, of that moving time. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, Harvest USA has been one of your missionary, well, I've been one of your mission, Penny and I, missionary-supported folks for about 25 years now. It's hard to believe that next, this fall will be 30 years that Harvest has been in existence, uh, we started out of 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia while I was a seminary student. And today uh, we are actually a Mission to North America uh, recommended mercy ministry of the PCA. And we have two foci at Harvest. One is to be a ministry of truth and mercy to the growing number of individuals and families and youth and churches that are impacted by pornography and sexual addictions, people who struggle with same-sex attractions and homosexuality. But our second foci is to be a equipping an educational resource for our churches uh, to begin to help people within our midst struggling with all those kind of um, biblical maladies. Uh, Let me just share a little bit about how your support's helping us. The Lord is uh, uh, just increasing our work there. Uh, Even on an international level, we were able to go and teach for two weeks at the Chinese Reformed Seminary of Taiwan in January. Uh, We've just had some of our resources and our books are being translated into um, Russian and Chinese. And I just got an email the other day asking could, could uh, some pastors in Iran translate them into Urdu and Farsi. So that's really encouraging. Uh, the Lord has been using us on the, on the campus, the secular campus in Philadelphia. We spoke on seven university campuses this spring. One of those was an Ivy League college, uh, a course on diversity and um, uh, diversity and uh, tolerance, and we told the, the, the uh, Muslim professor that we'll, we'll, we'll be glad to come and do a lecture on this, but we're going to come at it from a little different, different perspective. It's going to be based on the Bible. And he said, well, that's okay. Uh, and we did that. We sent two of our staff, and uh, after it was over, he took them out to lunch, and he said, you know, I had seven guest speakers. Most of them were from the gay and lesbian community of Philadelphia, but yours folks were the most concise, clear, and compassionate of any speaker. Will you come back every semester and do this? And he said, by the way, I've written five books and I have a Ph.D., but I don't really understand that relationship you were talking about with God. How do I get that? So it's really fun to be thinking you're going somewhere to do something else, but God has this secret plan. So those are some of the kind of things that we're doing in trying to reach youth and and some of our resources. But check out our webpage, harvestusa.org, and they'll give you a a, a myriad of resources about these issues um, today. Now, the topic I'm going to talk about today is one that, uh, very sh- in a very short time, one not readily discussed often in the church. I, I don't think in 35 years as a Christian, or almost 37, I- I've heard too many sermons on this, maybe one. Um, it's a passage which we obviously just don't choose to, to look at often. We know it's there, maybe we've read it many times, but we easily gloss over it. Uh, it contains very stunning words, it contains very difficult words, but it's one passage that I feel that there's never been a more needful time for us to, uh, to implement among our own uh, families, our own churches, and our own lives. What Paul is going to be speaking of in this passage or has spoken of in this passage uh, is so contrary to our nature. It's so contrary to the world. It's so contrary to our personal history and experiences and records and everything around us that we see. So let's turn, if you will, to First uh, Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. And that's on page 987 in your pew Bible. 
987, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally, brothers, we instructed you to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn how to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like those who don't know God, and that in this no one should wrong his brother or take advantage, for the Lord is the avenger in all this. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that is is stunning, and it is difficult, but it is wondrous that you would call us to something that only you can give us. So this morning, as we consider this passage, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds. Please be with the mouth of the speaker, whose sins are many, whose heart is often torn in many places, who is often full of unbelief and fear. And yet let your word prevail as we think about your heart to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, one of the things I'm going to do again very quickly this morning is we're going to consider this passage in three aspects. We're going to look at how the, the reality of this passage, the content of this passage, the stuff of this passage uh, is a couple of things. Number one, it's crazy to our culture. What God is calling, saying here is crazy to our culture. Number two, uh, how it impacts the growing number of people in our churches, the reality of it is often concealed in the church. And thirdly, we're going to see how God gives clean clothes for corrupt people. So number one, this, is, this passage is crazy to the culture. Number two, the stuff of this passage is often concealed in the church. And number three, God gives clean clothes for corrupt people. You know, Thessalonians is thought to be Paul's first letter. Uh, written a mere about 25 years after the death of Christ. It's the letter from a missionary exile, an exile missionary to men and women, to people. Uh, the words he used really are the Greek words for a family unit. So it's a very loving, endearing term to siblings. And, and what we find in Thessalonians is the first three chapters, Paul is talking about the good report that he continues to receive from Timothy about the progress of the church at Thessaloniki. So chapters 1 through 3 are a very emotional response about all the good news he's hearing. But in a very clear demarcation in chapter 4, he now details an admonishment about continued godly living. So he talks about the difficulties which any vibrant, energetic, enthusiastic church like Hickson Presbyterian, uh, yet imperfect body of people, as those who often bring the fallen baggage of their lives into their relationship with Christ. Uh, He's talking about how you now are to live out your your faith and your walk with Christ and how not to continue in those things that have characterized your life. So it's this admonishment of living to please God that this passage is concerned about. And the fact that God is calling the church at Thessaloniki to live a holy life, or the church in general, to avoid sexual immorality, to actually learn how to control their own body, of course, which doesn't happen until you learn how to control your own heart. The fact that he's saying not to live like this and be like those who don't know God, that was totally radical for the people of like 55 or 60 AD. But I want to tell you, It's totally radical for the people in our culture of 2013, maybe even more so. To honestly, to try to look like this, to try to look at how Paul is describing we should live, is is pure craziness to the culture around us. You know, I was speaking to a group of about 175 men at a church not long ago in a talk I give, and I read this passage, and a young guy about 30, as soon as I finished reading the passage, he jumps up and says, that's crazy. God can't expect anybody to live like that anymore. And I tell you, I was stunned for a second. But then it hit me. He's probably only vocalizing what half of those young men actually believe. Now, in the New Testament, it was called inverted living to try to do what Paul's talking about here. What do I mean by that? 
Just this. In the early church, people who were once very stingy with their money and their possessions, yet very liberal with their their bodies, became just the opposite. They became just the opposite. So people became very liberal with their possessions and their money, as in Acts 2, seeing all things they had in common they began selling everything they didn't, didn't really need, some of their adult toys, I guess, at that time, as far as big things they wanted, and uh, they uh, gave it to the church. But here, listen to this. While they became liberal with their possessions, get this now, they became very stingy with their bodies. It's not mine anymore. I can't do with it just what I would like to do. I can't go those places my heart would want to lead me. And Paul doesn't miss words here. He, he admonishes by contrasting the saved man and the unsaved, the regenerate with the non-regenerate. He says, I ask and urge that you do this more and more. What? Learn. Learn how to control your bodies and your hearts. Not in lustful passion, but in an honorable way. A holy way. Now I want you to know, as I said, that... that admonishment to do that isn't way up there on the high priorities of people that you rub shoulders with every day. Out there in your work world or your school world, your co-workers, to work at submitting your life and your heart to purpose to live like this, in a sense, is unnatural. What is natural? What? Passionate lust. Now, at Harvest USA, when the men and women come into our Bible study support groups, and on Tuesday night they're about 70, and about on Thursday they're about 60, when they come into our Bible study support groups, one of the things I often do is I redefine words so they can understand them. And so here's the definition for lust. Now, you can lust after a lot of things. Lust means inordinate affection or deep passion. And that can be towards good things and it can be towards bad things. It can be towards my reputation, my job, my career, even my family in a way. Uh, but Paul's talking here about a moral, immoral type of lust. But here's my definition I, I did a long time ago. Lust is that heart hunger in me that takes those made in the image of God, whether it's another man or another woman, and reduces them, and whether it's on a DVD online up here or down here, and reduces those people made into the image of God to something I can get out of them to fill my hungry heart right now. Now that means by nature, lust disregards. It consumes. It uses. It devours. And Paul says here, although that's the nature of our fallen hearts, it should be not be the road that you walk down anymore as you come to know him. On the contrary, it's that from which we continually need to be saved. I love the theologian William Law. You've probably never heard of him, but you've heard of his disciples, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, George Whitfield. But William Law, in a, in a sermon around, 18, around 1760, said this, He said, we need to know one thing. The gospel, our salvation, consists wholly in being saved from ourselves. From that which we are by nature, and to those places our hearts would naturally go. That's the role of the gospel. But it shouldn't surprise us, you know, that we live in a culture that promotes and seeks what? It seeks microwave, impersonal, on-demand, instant, false intimacy. Sexually speaking. And it's, only, it's a culture that's only getting more savvy and sophisticated at packaging that. Um, I read the other day there are now 30 million pornography websites. That if you hit print of everything that exists out there, it would take 750 buildings the size of the Library of Congress. I think we can say with certainty, uh, using the language of, of Genesis 4, that we don't have to go far looking for sin that uh, sin crouches at the door and its desire is to have us. It's to have our young people. So we need to be alert and have our guard up. It shouldn't surprise us that sexting, not texting, is the newest rage of 14 to 17-year-olds. It shouldn't surprise us that companies are pouring billions of dollars into technology, of course, now that will allow you to go to a Braves game and watch it, but have your little um, I-4 or I-5, whatever, in the crook of your hand and be watching something you shouldn't be watching at the same time. Men come to our office and say they're doing that. It shouldn't surprise us. A piece of literature I saw on a university campus actually a few months ago that said, uh, aimed at 10-year-olds, saying, thank you, gay or lesbian, you won't know till you try. It shouldn't surprise us. And this is something I just read. The, the American Association of Trial Lawyers, those are divorce lawyers, say that pornography usage is now 
a factor in 67% of all divorces. Uh, w- the culture will disciple us in these areas if we're not careful, and it will definitely disciple our youth. I got to speak at the RUF, our, our, our denomination's uh, uh, college ministry at Yale uh, last fall, and uh, after I spoke, I think I, I forgot what the topic was. Oh, I know what it was. Why how you handle sex will always be a Jesus thing. And uh, about 50 students came, and one of the girls came up to me with tears running down her eyes. I remember she was from Georgia, actually. <laughs> and she said, Mr. Freeman, why haven't our churches and our families prepared us better for this? Don't they know they're screaming 20 times a day in my ear here to go for it? Try it, do it, do whatever. This is your time to experiment these five, next four years. So Paul, in this passage, really isn't making a big deal out of, uh, out of these things. Maybe that's why we tend to avoid it. But the truth is, as one of our, our Harvest staff said recently, the real, this passage is teaching that really uh, who we are sexually reveals who we are spiritually. The Lord can t- cares about what we do with our hearts and our bodies because it reveals the allegiance of our heart, uh, t- both to others around us and to him and to the community of believers. In other words, you might say the crux of this passage is that our sanctification, our growth in holiness, in some way is always linked to how we live our sexual lives. And as I said, that's getting harder and harder. Because you see, in our fallen culture, uh, it just says sex will fix everything. It will end your loneliness it will make you feel better. Just go for it. And, um, and we're starting to buy it often more and more. But C.S. Lewis said something interesting about this almost 75 years ago. In his book, uh, Mere Christianity, he said this. Our warped natures, the devils who tempt us, the contemporary propaganda out there for lust in 1948, <laughs> they all combine to make us feel that the desires we're trying to resist are so natural, so healthy, and so reasonable that it's really perverse and abnormal to try to even resist that stuff. Isn't that what our culture tells us? Isn't that often what our hearts, even our hearts tell us? You know, some of you may have seen recently that the guy who played in The Sopranos died this week. Now, I actually love that series, and we watched it once they cleaned it up and put it on A&E or something a few years ago. But here you had these tough guys who were, these tough guys, you know, Mafia guys who were really sociopaths. They didn't care about human life. They just didn't kill anybody as anything. But you know what happened? When they ran into anything that seemed bigger than they were, these murderous sociopaths, I, I saw them. They do it in about every two, 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 two episodes. When they hit a wall, they, they, they'll do this. They'll say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Folks, that's what's happening now kind of among our people in these areas. The text actually gives us the impression again that it's unnatural for a person to want to live like Paul is calling them to here without, without a deep encounter of Christ, with Christ, and without a deep ongoing work of Christ in their lives. Because you know, it's only when Christ be- comes in and begins to mix it up with us that we have even the desire or will or power to be different in this area of our lives. Uh, to want to put to death our idols. And even then, again, it can, be, it can be a heck of a challenge. It's rare today in our ministry for us to find people in the church unaffected or touched by this in some way. Um, and I'm talking to you in, in detail about this today because uh, folks are we're in our churches and coming into our churches out of this culture and out of this enslavement as the norm. The other day I went into my office and one of my staff guys, Dave, was sitting there like this, and he's usually not like this. And I said, David, what's wrong? And he said, John, I've had three 10-year-olds in the office this week. Three 10-year-olds brought by their, by their parents uh, already hopelessly, hopelessly hooked on pornography from their Wii's and their Xboxes and their things like that. By the way, if you don't have a filter on your computer, on your, now they have that, now they have one those that will manage all the electronics in your home, please get one. I had an elder in my office a few weeks ago, a businessman in his 40s, that hardly ever shares a tear out there because he's very strong. He was weeping because he had not followed his wife's advice about protecting their family. And he said, John, now my naivety and my pride, because we don't need a filter like that here, has scarred my son for life and set him up for a battle. Uh, so we, we definitely need that. Uh, I talked, or I read recently with a psychologist told me, said, John, I'm seeing scars in the lives of 26, 27-year-olds that I only saw in people that were 60, 20 years ago. Uh, that's, 
how much Satan is crouching at the door and his desire is to have us in this area. Now, God has given us a different calling according to this passage. And the working out of that calling, of course, is, a, is an important matter. The truth is that, that much of the struggle our people have today, and this is my second point, is, is concealed in the church. You know, I first got interested in Harvest USA through a missions professor. He told me two things that I thought were important in this missions class. He used the word uh, hidden people and unreached people. And he said uh, the unreached people in our culture in, in, in 1983 is, is the gay and lesbian community. Uh, he said they're the fastest growing people group in America. And, of course, we've seen that now. But he said the hidden people are those who come to Christ and just sit on the pews and don't know how the gospel applies to these areas of their life. Uh, and it's interesting. I wrote an article for our magazine, our uh, PCA magazine, By Faith, about three years ago. And I used that term, hidden people. And here's an email I got. Now, when I share an email, it's always by permission as a teaching tool that the person's given me. This man says, I was one of the hidden people you spoke about in that, past, that article, John. And listen to how he describes himself. A child of the damned, children of a lesser God, less than human. Now, this is one of our church members because he got the By Faith magazine. And I thought something. You know what hit me is that the verse in Scripture that says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. This man was heart sick. He said, I would sit in my church Sunday after Sunday wondering why I was even there. I taught adult Sunday school for many years. I ran clubs. I was a deacon. I worked in many things hoping that all my works would set me free. Here's a man who needed to understand grace more. He needed to understand God's call on his life. Uh, but he was one of the hidden. And some of the hidden people in our churches are trying to get help in different places. I just talked to a man uh, up in Nashville who goes to a group called Essay, uh, uh, Sexaholics Anonymous, for his pornography problem. He said, John, I go to this group, and it's not really Christian, but it's all I can find. It, it, there are some aspects of it that are some basis of Christianity, but it's not gospel-oriented, but it's the only thing I can find. And he said, this church has three meetings a day, 365 days a year. Um, We've got to help our people begin to address these struggles in our lives on a deeper level because we live in a culture, and if we're not careful as a church culture, we will help our people to become what I call disassociative in this this area. And what I mean by that is the struggles that a 17-year-old has, or 15 if the hope of the gospel isn't put out to those struggles consistently, positively in this area, soon they won't be 16, they'll be 26 or 36 or 46 or 56 it's because we get them in our office at Harvest. Uh, learning how to control your own body, as Paul said, comes from learning how to control your heart. But it also comes from learning to access the throne of grace. What does Scripture say? At your time of deepest need. At the first inkling of your heart going in bad directions or your mind or your flesh starting down a path to soak yourself in the gospel and to begin to be honest with God and some other people. Uh, And you know, most people don't know how to do that. They have to be taught how to do that. They have to be led. They have to be walked beside. You know, we had a guy that came in our office one time for an interview. I don't, I hopefully don't preach at people, but I must have been a little too preachy that morning because this 26-year-old guy said to me, well, you've told me a lot of things that you can do here or I need to do, but can you take me there? Can you walk with me there? And I was really stunned because that, that's what discipleship is all about, is walking with people in these things that, that embarrass them and it brought them shame tremendously. Uh, because if we don't start doing that, um, we're going to um, become more, see more and more people become like this guy I want to read about now. This is an email I got a few months ago. From a guy, he said, a friend referred me to your ministry and I was able to look at your website because I struggled heavily with moral things, especially pornography. I became a Christian in my youth group at church and I grew to love Christ. But however, flirtation with sexual sin and the deceitful drawings and lies they promised began to compete with my walk with God. It became, it became downhill after that. It soon it became an addiction. Every year passing closer and closer to my sinfulness. I live in depression and avoid people. Giving in to these things has taken a terrible toll on my identity and my relationships. I feel sorrow from time to time and still can't believe I would give up what I've known for all this straying. I isolate myself. I rage against all wise and sound judgment, even as I still feel God convicting my heart from time to time, but now sinking deeper into pornography, chat rooms, and cyber sex. He's already taken away the lampstand from my life at 23. I'm no longer a credible witness. I am proud, narcissistic, and self-righteous. This guy had a real moment of lucid thinking. 
The times I've been faithful to God becoming more of a distant memory. But now I know I want freedom from this. I want to know him again and regain the essence of who I once was. Is there any way out of this? Can you hear the desperation in that young guy's voice? That's starting to mirror and reflect more and more of our young people. I share that not only to, but to tell you that no one uh, rushes into sin. They just take steps slowly. And I also read that to you to say that we become oriented to, things become second nature to us that we give our hearts to over and over again. Over and over again. But helping people learn to run to the cross at these times of temptations and struggles is so important. You know, I was talking to a guy in my office one day about this idea of running to the cross in your most unholy, reprobate moments, throwing yourself on Jesus, trusting all of you know to all, all of you know of him, uh, his mercy for you. Uh, and he said, now, John, that's a no- novel idea, running to the cross. He said, I don't know much about that, but I do know about slinking back to the cross. Slinking back to the cross. When I put enough distance between myself and my last sin episode or my, myself and my last whatever and I said, I said, son, that, that isn't repentance, that's penance. And that will never change your heart. That will never change your heart. We've got to help people understand how Jesus yearns to fill these holes that we're trying to fill in these areas. Uh, Robert mentioned the Valley of Vision. I want to read a little prayer that, that really hits it on the head. He says, when, my, when your son Jesus came into my soul, he became more dear to me than sin had formerly been. Are we helping our people see Jesus as more dear than the petty idols they trust in this area? His kingly and kindly rule soon replaced sin's tyranny. Teach me to believe that if ever I would have any sin conquered, yes, I must not only labor to overcome it, but I must continually invite Christ into its place. He must become to me more, much more, than those vile things have been so that his sweetness, power, and life may dwell there. There aren't any special magical answers to folks struggling increasingly with this except for Jesus, ministering Jesus in this way. Now, now you know, sex is a bigger force than any of us were ever meant to handle alone. It's really meant to be a, a community thing to help each other on deep levels like this. Why is it we have so much trouble like that in, in these areas? Well, I love what Paul Tripp has written. Uh, he has a new book out called Sex and Money, which is excellent, very convicting. But he says this, he says, Sex and what we do with our body is a key revealer of our identity. It will say at any point whether I'm at the center of my universe or God is. Whether I'm at the center of my world or I'm a created and dependent creature. Sex is about worship. So the way I handle it or mishandle it will always reveal what's ruling my heart. It demands my acute awareness and honesty of what's going on there at all times because it confronts me with my inability. Therefore, sex and my prone to misuse it always reveals my need for mercy and grace. And then he says this, which is kind of stunning. He says, we have to realize when it comes to sexual purity, it's as impossible for us to achieve that alone and in ourselves as it would be for us to save ourselves. And he goes on to say that one of the things we've got to begin teaching our young people and teaching each other is the difference between what's called big picture sex and little picture sex. And he describes that. Listen to this. He says, sex is not a thing unto itself to exist ever by itself. Big picture sex must be understood as part of the life God has created for covenant relationship. Little picture sex is isolated and gets kidnapped by our desires. Big picture sex acknowledges there is something bigger than personal pleasure. Little picture sex exists in the confines of what will please me. Big picture sex always serves a bigger ideal. Little picture sex always writes its own rules. Big picture sex is driven by a commitment and love to the body of Christ. Did you ever think about that? Little picture sex is dominated by me. Big picture sex is always patient and kind. Little picture sex makes impatient demands and punishes when I don't get my way. Big picture sex is viewed as part of life. Little picture sex takes over your life. You know, one of the things that begins to help us deal with the idols of our lives and those around us is we begin to see that we stand firm in Christ and we are called to a banqueting room. And through Jesus' work, we're able to be in that banqueting room 24-7 
introduced, given a tuxedo to the man who's throwing the party, God. And, and we've got to realize that as we have that constant access to God, no matter what our struggles and temptations are, they were always in that banqueting room. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the theologian, puts it as this in his commentary on Romans 5. He says, one of our problems is we don't realize that we're always in the banqueting room with God. We don't go in and out of it. We have constant access to God. You're either always in the banqueting room in grace or you're, all, you're out of it. You're never halfway in between. You're not in and out of grace one day and one day and out the other. You stand in grace. You stand in the gospel. You don't creep into it. You don't shuffle into it. You don't crawl into it. You don't slink into it. You stand firm in it, established. And then you begin to act upon this in your prayer life and in your relationship with others and in your heart and mind. We can now go to God because of Jesus, knowing he is our Heavenly Father who always delights to see us coming, to receive us, whose love for us is way beyond our imagination. That's how we begin to help people in our churches deal with the shame and guilt of these things. But we also do it by realizing this. God, and this is number three, God gives clean clothes for, for corrupt people. And that's what Martin Lloyd-Jones was talking about. He gives clean clothes for corrupt people. You know, the gospel really is for sinners. It's for the dishonest, the shady, the would-be frauds, the distorted. That's the essence of what it means to be corrupt. And, the, and, and Paul says that's who we are by nature in this passage. Uh, but it would be a terrible shame if we were left there, wouldn't it? But God has done something in Christ to give us the courage to be different people and to address anything in our hearts that comes up. Now, when I was studying at UTC and I studied Greek and then the Greek classics and then I got to Westminster, I studied about Aristotle. You know, too many of us have an Aristotelian view of God. You know, Aristotle said there, there is a God up there, but he's very far away, uninvolved, and unmoved. In fact, Aristotle named him the unmoved mover. Folks, our God, we could label him as the moved mover. He is moved by the plights, the struggles, and the messes we get into, our people get into, our friends and relatives get into, and wants to come and join into that mess. Do you realize Jesus left the most perfect relationship in eternity and came, what, into the mess and mud and muck of this world? into the, mu- the mess, the mud, and the muck of my heart and your heart. But also so that we could enter the mud and mess and muck of other peoples around us. It's the key to this whole passage. He comes and takes up residence in us um, and the Holy Spirit residing in here. And you know, we, on, one, on one hand we say, oh, that's great. But you know, the more I get to know God personally after 40 years, I say, oh no, please don't do that. Don't come in here. You know, And one of the things, uh, because of what's often there. But you know one of the things in this Holy Spirit, which Paul uh, Paul mentions three times here in this passage, the role of the Holy Spirit we teach people at Harvest is that he's really there to pull a Star Trek on you. You know the Star Trek movie that's out now? I think it's the 89th Star Trek movie or something. (laughs) But you know, when I was a kid on Thursday night at 8 o'clock in 1965, you know, their Star Trek came on. You know, it was that now probably was a cardboard cutout of the Starship Enterprise. (laughs) circling that probably basketball that was painted like the earth. Uh, and I'll never forget the words that came. They always said them every, every week. The role of the Starship Enterprise, to boldly go where no man has gone before, to boldly seek out new worlds. Do you know that's what the Holy Spirit's role is in our life? And he's committed to doing it until we see him personally face to face. He's there for our good. Maybe that's why Paul mentions this three times about being holy. Be holy. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not for everybody. It's only for followers of Jesus. And he's there for our good to show us the ways we are so unlike God. Not to fill us with more contempt and shame and guilt but, or defeat, but really to give us a hope. To give us the hope that all you really need to do business with this God who yearns to enter the mess of your heart. All you need is need. All you need is, is need to admit the mess. To own the fact that we are tempted a million times during the week to go to other places that promise some, some sense of life. And God says, no, I want to be that place. Now, I love what Tim Keller says. And as, as actually probably my former boss for a few years, who was the head of our Harvest Committee, he says this. In a, minute, in a, a sermon in Galatians, he says this. When we begin to obey God out of a grateful heart, 
that comes from a deep awareness of who we are as his children. The idols that control our lives are disempowered. And we're free to live for God. So in other words, a grateful heart isn't just concocted of, so let's me be hell happy today. It comes from a deep awareness of Jesus taking the hit for you and me. And he says out of that produces a joy that begins to let the idols that control our heart be disempowered. But, but a more important thing, too, is to realize that what enables, us to, enables that to happen is that God is always mingling his grace with our corruption. He's always mingling his grace with our corruption as a rule, not as an exception. You know, some time ago I was reading Hebrews 11. That's that passage about the heroes and heroines of the faith. I think there are 31 mentioned, and it says many more that they didn't mention. And some of those names as I was reading Hebrews 11 jumped off, off the page. David, okay, David, a man after God's own heart. The author of much of our scripture. You know, one of the things I learned at seminary is there's more written about David in the Old Testament than there is any other person of antiquity. Greek or Roman or anybody, we have more of a historical record of David than anybody in, in, in uh, Greek or our, our uh, Roman history. Uh, and we know about his, his psalms and his um, uh, Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance. Uh, but, but you know, David is also a proud man. He was filled often with pride and arrogance. He often led with his hot head, and it got him into trouble at times. Um, but you know, even after, after David went through repentance and was God's own man, all still wasn't well with him. I mean, uh, that's why you need to read through the historical stuff sometimes. Uh, when I had some operations on my leg last year, two years ago, I, I, I re- became reacquainted with the Old Testament in a way I hadn't in many years, uh, where I saw God as this God who was personal but was just not going to be put in a box with anybody. And one of the things I learned about David, even after all that he, God did for him, it said he had seven wives and several concubines. People, his wife, women that were not his wife. That he slept with. So here, what do we have? Well, here we have a redeemed man that still needed some more redeeming, didn't he? What was that about? Or then the next name that popped off was Samson. Oh, my Samson. you got, you got to be kidding, God. He was the Charlie Sheen, if you know who that is, of our day. Always in the tabuloids. Uh, he was a man who was a judge over Israel. Uh, early on in his life, we get a glimpse that he's not going to be a good, pretty good judge because of because he can't judge his own self well. You know, he's a young man and he sees a, a girl down by a creek. And God had said, don't intermarry with the Philistines because they'll pull your heart away to serve other gods. But he sees this beautiful girl. He's not thinking with his head. And he says, um, go get her for me to his parents. And they put up a little fight and they say, isn't there a girl among, among the Hebrews? And he says, no, go get her for me. And they go do it. So actually it shows we had a helicopter parents 2,000 years ago. Uh, uh, but uh, then we find out in reading through the judges that uh, he frequented houses of ill repute. Then we know, of course, of his love, a lust for Delilah that was almost Israel's downfall, and it was his downfall. You ask, how can that be? One of the heroes of the faith. It's just this, on some level, it's, it's, it's in a microcosm, the average ordinary follower of Jesus trying to work out his salvation, still with lots of corruption. I love the Puritans, and I love your, pa- your pastor quotes from him frequently. There's a book that I've camped out in for several years that actually her broad order gave me called The Godly Man's Picture. It was written in 1666 by Thomas Watson. Now, in that book, there's a chapter called Comfort to the Godly. I actually think they should have, he should have named it Comfort to the Scoundrels, but he called it Comfort to the Godly. Let me tell you why I think that. Here's what he says. Do you ever with weeping eye look upon Christ and bring those idols and lusts that you love to him? You see, there are in the best of saints interweavings of sin and grace, a dark side to the light side, pride mixed with humility, much earthliness mixed with much heaviness. Even in the regenerate, that's the born again, there's often more corruption than grace. So much smoke that you can barely discern the grace of the gospel. So much bad passion, you can hardly see the good passion sometimes. Now listen to this. A Christian in this life is more like a glass of beer that has more foam in it than beer. Yet, when God puts his tenderness into the heart, he will always cherish the work of the Spirit there. That's the reason those folks are mentioned in Hebrews 11. 
Christ will never quench the remnants of grace but in, because in God's eyes, a little grace is as precious as a lot of grace. And listen to this. As a fire may be hidden in the embers, so grace may be hidden in many disorders of the soul. He makes the spark prevail over all the corruptions. That should give us godly and gospel love and patience for other people. Maybe not where we're at yet. Maybe taking three steps forward and one step back. But this side of heaven, much grace and holiness will be mixed together. And that works because God has clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus. You see, he doesn't see us as we are, but he sees us as we're going to be. That's his kind of love for us because of the Holy Spirit, and that should be our kind of love for other people. Now, Paul is saying, actually, in this passage, to continue to live and follow the desires of your fallen heart in these immoral, corrupt ways is what? It's false worship. Now, what is false worship? It's when we give, and they all start with, I'm going to use the word A, the letter A. It's when we give adoration, attention, allegiance, and affection to something other than God. And as I said, that can be many other things that aren't sexually related. But false worship is when we give, give other things the attention, adoration, affection, and allegiance of which God alone is worthy. That's why in this passage, not only is it, is it crippling, uh, it's dangerous to continue in those areas. Uh, he tells us here and warns us that we're on shaky ground if we do so. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff in the news this week about a, an organization sort of like Harvest, named Exodus International, uh, that, have, that have closed down their doors. Uh, I, I, was un- I don't know if I was going to mention this or not, but several people asked me this morning, so I thought I would. Maybe you've heard about it. Uh, we got out of that association about a year and a half ago when I saw them going in very unbiblical directions. When I saw them going into ways in which they were compromising the gospel. And kind of the thing that uh, when the rubber hit the road and I called them and I said, well, tell me the role of faith and repentance in what you're doing now. And they said, well, we don't really use those words anymore. We just kind of say, take people as they are and say that uh, no matter what you're doing, if you know Jesus, you'll be okay. <laughs> and I said, that's not very biblical. It's not the essence of what Paul is talking about here in First Thessalonians 4. Uh, you know, there's some people today here, sitting here, you or your family members or your people you love in your extended family who have a history, who have a record uh, of bad choices or maybe even continued struggles in these things. And I want to tell you today that the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. Again, every day, fresh and new. Uh, that's what we, we, we speak about in Harvest USA. That's what we're doing daily there. And, you know, God has opened up some doors. I didn't get to tell you about the Amish people. We just did a seminar for 100 Amish men in a barn two Saturdays ago. Um, I've just met with four Amish families who have been excommunicated from their church for becoming born again. Because they're told, you can't read the Bible. It's not for you. It's got to come through the pulpit. You, you cannot understand it or read it. So it shouldn't surprise you that there's a lot of stuff going on in the community there. Um, I had somebody tell us the other day, John, God has given you an open door to this community that we have never seen them give any other foreigners. <laughs> yeah, we're foreigners. Because anybody that's not an Amish is called, does anybody know? The English. But God is opening those doors in an amazing way. Uh, and you can pray about that. And so we're helping them see the gospel is for you. Um, The message of these verses is that the Holy Spirit makes it possible. He is the one that gives us the power, the desire, and the will to be different and to learn to be different. And as I said, uh, it's a learning process. I love what what, what Titus says in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that brings our salvation has appeared to all people. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives right now. You know, for many people, and well, most people in the world and many people in our churches increasingly, that's beginning to be a pie-in-the-sky kind of idea. You know, maybe when I reach heaven it'll be okay, but live upright, godly, obedient lives now here, you've got to be kidding. 
as echoed by that young guy in New York City that stood up and said, that's crazy. But we've got to help people say, no, that's not crazy. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, and it's just as powerful and effective now. Let me walk with you with, through that. There again, people don't know how to do that alone. People do not know how to put sin to death alone. I love Tim Keller's definition of repentance. He says repentance is killing... He, he, he's actually uh, paraphrasing John Owens, a Puritan. He says repentance is killing that which is killing me without killing myself. Repentance is killing that which is killing me without killing myself. Again, people don't know how to do that. We've got to walk beside them. We've got to invite them. We've got to show them what that means. I got a call the other day. You can pray for us uh, as well because we were getting called, asked to come into more Christian schools. And we got a call the other day from a school in Annapolis. I don't know how many students they have, but I looked online. They have 147 middle and high school teachers, so there must be a big group school, big uh, group of students. And they said, John, we just need your help because we're kind of a sexual mess here and our kids need help. And uh, so we're trying to figure out how to go in now and help them. We got a call from Charlotte Christian Day School that said the same thing. We're getting calls from more youth pastors all the time. In fact, uh, we did our first trial seminar about three months ago for youth pastors only called Redeeming Sex and Sexuality in Our Youth. And we limited it to 40, which we had in two days. And it was wonderful because one of the things I was able to tell them is if you don't want to delve into the lives of your young people for this area, you probably need to get out of youth work. (laughs) Move over and let somebody else do it. Because you are the stopgap. You are the stopgap between 12-year-old Johnny, if you've earned the right to be heard, who comes to you and say, you know, he doesn't have the, 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 the courage to go to his dad, but he goes to the person he trusts, his youth pastor, and he says, I'm looking at some stuff I, I shouldn't be looking at. I don't feel good about it. I said, you're the stopgap between 14-year-old or 15-year-old Susie who, think, who comes to you and says, you know, there's something going on in my soul that I don't understand, but I think I... I think I like girls. And of course, when you tell a youth pastor that, what happens? Their mouth drops open. They don't know what to do. So we spent the rest of the afternoon saying, how would you say to Johnny or, or Susie, I'm so glad you told me that. That took a lot of courage. Will you come and talk to me about that? And of course, then, then the youth pastor said, well, what would we say to them? And so we spent the afternoon saying, here's the themes that you would talk with them about maybe over the next 10, 12 weeks. Because you see, if you don't do that, when they get to the university, like University of Pennsylvania, other places, UT, even UT, whatever, uh, there's going to be lots of people that want to talk to them. And it's not going to aim them towards Christ. So you are that man. Your volunteers are that man and woman. In fact, we had a church in Knoxville. I had Penny and I come down about two years ago. And they said, we want you to do a seminar for all of our small group leaders. It's a very, pretty large church. They had 129 small group leaders that day that came. And they said, these are the, they're probably not going to come to me, Mr. Senior Pastor Smith. I'm too intimidating. Not that I mean to be, but, uh, but they, they may go to Mr. and Mrs. Jones, who are their small group leader, and say, hey, help us. Hey, here's some areas we're struggling. Here's some areas I'm struggling. And so we have to help equip our people to do that more and more, to show the gospel is for you, and that's why Jesus came. Now, uh, I want to kind of just end with this. Um, there's a statue. Now, this gets back to the whole idea of, of God yearning to, to work in the desperate and the broken, uh, where he loves to work the best. You believe that, don't you? No, you don't, because I don't believe it most of the time. Uh, I think he wants to work in the strong who have their game together, not in the desperate and the broken. Um, but it's in the desperate and the broken he does his most creative and best work. Uh, and the passage, again, this day says the Holy Spirit makes that possible because only the broken and the desperate need Holy Spirit power to be different people. Now, let me just, let me just end with this example. Uh, there's a statue that was sculpted uh, by Michelangelo. It's the statue of David uh, in Florence. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've actually seen it. I've been within a two feet of it at one point. It's a beautiful, like, 14-foot-high statue, wonderful, beautiful thing. Uh, now, Michelangelo was often commissioned. That's how he made his living, with these works of art. Uh, and if you, were to, if you were commissioned to do that, to do a work of art or whatever, what, that was going to be a paycheck, what would you do? Well, first of all, you would go try to find the best utensils, the best tools you could probably find. I have three young people, well, they're, not, you know, they're all the adults now who are all artists on some level. Uh, two of my kids went to art school. One of them wanted to go to art fashion. She's forgiven me for not letting her go to study fashion and design at NYU. (laughs) 
I just didn't want her to come out with $250,000 with those student loans. <laughs> She's thanked me now. She works for a law firm and uh, as, the, as the chief administrator. But uh, they're all artists. And, you know, we would always have to go to this one art store down in Philadelphia. I, you know, I, I swear every tool they needed cost at least $150 during their art history career. <laughs> but we would go to Utrecht's. And we would, uh, at 13th and Broad Street, we would buy that tool they needed for that project. And uh, uh, so Michelangelo or any sculptor would, would find the best tools, the best hammer, the best chisels. And then once you had that, you would start to, uh, you would go then try to find your piece of raw material, wouldn't you? You, you would find your piece of granite or, or your piece of, uh, your rock, your marble, your stone. Remember, because only the best piece would do because your next job depended on how good this job was with Michelangelo. But that's not what Michelangelo did. He didn't um, use that best piece of granite or marble. What happened is one day he was walking through an alleyway after he had been commissioned to do this statue. He was walking through the alleyway and he passed a trash heap, a garbage dump. And he saw a piece of granite or marble that another artist had started to work on but had discarded and thrown in the trash. As if to say, that's no good. It's, It's too flawed. I can't do anything with it. But as he stood there and he looked at that piece of rock and he imagined what it could be through his hands, well, he took it home and it became the statue of David. Now, isn't that the way it is in your life and mine? You know, God wants to take the worst parts of our hearts, the worst parts of our records, our present struggles and temptations, the things that might shame us the most and make us want to run for cover if anybody knew about it, And he yearns to turn them and us into a work of beauty, like a statue of David. And uh, it's all of him. It's all of grace. He does it through the master laboratory here of his church. And it's always through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Amen. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God who does not look for that perfect piece of unblemished unflawed piece of material, but that you came down to touch and enter our flawed and broken and uh, misguided hearts and minds. Lord, you came down to make us new in areas that we have given up on. Help us bring the message of the gospel to those who have given up on their hearts and their lives, in our families, around us, in our communities, in our schools, on our job. Lord, help us to realize the truth of Proverbs 14, 13 that says that even in laughter of those people around us, the heart can be aching. Because in this broken, fallen world, Lord, we have achy hearts. Thank you for coming and giving us your Holy Spirit to remind us that you see us not as we are, but as we're going to be, so that we can pass that good news of the gospel as people embrace faith in Jesus to those around us, and to our own needful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.